If I don't know you, my name's Kyle. I'm the pastor of Preaching and Vision here uh, at Center Church. And man, we are glad to be gathering together. I had a uh, a busy week this week, uh, but man, a very uh, encouraging week. I was able to go up to the DFW area and be a part of the assessing of uh, five pastors uh, that are looking to join uh, in and they're going to be planting uh, churches, but they're uh, wanting to be a part of the Acts 29 network, which is a network we're a part of. And man, it was just really, uh, it was long, it was hard, a whole lot of talking and listening and asking questions and uh, man, me learning to just say hard things. Uh, <laughs> I'm not the best at that. Uh, but we, uh, man, I think the most encouraging part was uh, three of the five churches are a part of Redeemer Network, which is another network we're a part of. So they're going to be, there's a church that's going to be planted in Georgetown. Uh, there's a church that's going to be planting uh, in Hutto uh, on the other side of Round Rock. So you have north of Round Rock, you have east of Round Rock. Uh, and then a church... Uh, that's that's already kind of replanting in San Angelo, uh, along with that, a church in uh, San Antonio, another one in the DFW area. And it was just, man, I left that time uh, just encouraged that, man, uh, uh, to be a part of a network that is uh, planting churches uh, and, and is continuing to want to be about planting more churches, raising up new leaders. And so, uh, yeah, we... Uh, and, you know, in, in terms of that and thinking about that, man, we want to be a church even in the future uh, that, that plants uh, another church even out of uh, Center Church here. So, yeah, so last week we finished our value series where we looked at uh, really uh, these four behaviors that we want to grow in uh, as a church that, uh, again, we say our vision or mission statement is we want to be good neighbors uh, to Brenham. Uh, by joyfully displaying the good news of Jesus in every part of our lives. And so, man, we saw these four behaviors uh, in light of that, that we want to be biblically transformed, that we want to be an engaging community, uh, that we want to practice honest transparency. Uh, and then lastly, we want to be a, a church that is about or engaged in caring service. And, and what I want to say, just kind of closing that off, is that, man, that uh, my hope and my prayer is that you don't just today say, okay, we're in James, we're done with that, right? But that actually, as we continue to walk through James, and even as we, man, just week in and week out, that we uh, would continue to look back to those things that we walked through these last four weeks. That we would, uh, even as we look at God's Word today, that we would see that, man, that what we're going to walk through today, that it would, in God's Word, that it would transform our hearts and our lives. That, that as we engage the Scriptures, that we would do it in the context of community. That we would, uh, man, even if you hear something today, that you would allow the Spirit to, uh, man, ask the Spirit to make you transparent about where your heart really is. That you would grow in honesty and even share that with others. Uh, and then lastly, and I think that, man, the text is really going to push us this, in this area, that we would continue to be a people of caring service. And so since we've kind of broke from James for a month, I think a good thing to do would be to recap where we've been uh, so that then we can dive in. Uh, so we spent our first few weeks really in chapter 1 of this this book, this letter that was written by James, Jesus' brother, to uh, the dispersion of Christians throughout really the known world at the time. And what he does is he begins by telling these, uh, man, these followers of Jesus how they should respond to trials. And really what he's pressing in on is he's saying, hey, I know that you've been dispersed because of persecution uh, to these various places that you wouldn't call home. 
Uh, not only that, but as you've gotten there, you are a, uh, a marginalized people that have been taken advantage of in many ways. Uh, many of those that were followers of Jesus during this point that James is writing to, they find themselves in poverty, they find themselves struggling. And man, uh, it would be really easy just to turn and run from the faith that they have uh, to these things of ease. And so uh, he's talked about how do you respond to trials in light of the gospel? Then he says, man, in the midst of this, in the midst of every trial, in the midst of all of life, we have these temptations. That, and man, uh, we need to know not only what the good news says about temptation, but man, how the good news speaks to that temptation. And, and uh, man, the reality of uh, man, when we walk into temptation, what it does, that it leads to sin and that sin leads to death. And then we close the chapter with this call to not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word. You see, at the end of chapter one, James, man, he, he uh, sets forth uh, kind of gonna, what's going to be like his argument throughout the rest of the letter. And really, if I were to uh, describe it, it's that faith produces action. This led us into chapter 2 where this call to not just be hearers but also doers of the word. He, he begins to flesh it out and build it out. And, and he uh, looks at, at, at daily life and he says, man, this, but because faith produces action, because you shouldn't just be a hearer of the word but a doer of the word as well. He, he's saying that, man, all of these things are imperative to the life of a Christian, they are not simply optional responses to faith. Well, what James is getting at, what he's even going to argue today, is that, man, a faith that produces action, uh, man, action is imperative to one's faith. It's, it's indicative to, it is a response to a life of faith. And so the way he does that at the beginning of chapter 2 is he calls us not to show partiality towards others, whether by their wealth or how uh, amazing they seem as followers of Jesus or whatever it is. But he says, rather, we are to fulfill the law in two ways, by loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. You see, we are to live lives that reflect the mercy that we've received from God by showing mercy to others, no matter their position. You see, the thing about the cross is that the cross, it, it, it does, it, it lays bare our brokenness, does it not? But it doesn't just lay bare our brokenness. The cross of Jesus levels the playing field, right? I don't care how much money you have, what kind of status you have, uh, man, what kind of merit you have outside in, in your daily life. When you come to the foot of the cross, we're all on the same playing field. And not only are we all in the same playing field, we all uh, are. We all have the same need. And I think a lot of times, and you know, and even thinking about this is and looking at it, man. So often we can think, well, I don't have as I, I know I have need, but I don't have as much need as that person. Now the cross would say otherwise. It would say you are in desperate need. You see, we are all in need of grace and, and it'll be this call that, that James lays out to show mercy rather than partiality that he's going to use to continue building out his argument for active faith. A faith that does not simply hear, but that hears and acts. So let's jump right in by reading James 2 verses 14 through 19. It says this, what good is it, my brothers? 
If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. James says this, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So in life, um, you ever gone into a situation and you're going to go about it one way and then like, and you even may say like, this is what we're going to do. And then the moment hits and it just goes downhill really fast. Right. Like you have those moments. I, we, I talked about it a couple of weeks ago. Like, right. Like in boxing, uh, if you if you follow boxing, like two fighters are getting ready to fight. The buildup and the anticipation of the fight is almost as crazy as the fight itself, because the whole time what's happening is what are they doing to one another? Man, they're just talking back and forth. Right. They're trying to get in each other's heads and they're saying, oh, I'm going to do this or I'm going to do that until they get in the ring. And in the words of Mike Tyson, everyone has a plan until they get hit in the mouth. Right. And then it goes downhill from there and you have to adjust and you begin to realize sometimes you're like, this isn't going to go well at all. Uh, The other day, um, you know, Haley and I, we've been having a lot of conversations about parenting and what we need to do in parenting. And what we're realizing over and over again is more so than our children needing to change certain things. We need to begin by changing our own hearts. Right. You get to that point. You're like, well, actually, it needs to begin with us. Like we need to model this. And so. Uh, there's moments, uh, if you've ever had kids or have kids currently, where your kids are in another room and they start fighting. Because that happens, right? Uh, all the time, it seems like. Uh, and they are fighting, you can hear it, and, and I get up and Haley will say, Hey Kyle, don't yell. I'm like, not going to yell? I don't want to yell. And I'll go in there and I'll say, Hey, Guys, what's going on? And it'll go really good. And we'll, you know, we'll even press on the heart a little bit and talk about, you know, like, it's kind of set things straight. And I walk out of the room and three minutes later, guess what happens? They start fighting again. And Haley's like, Kyle, don't yell. I'm like, I'm not going to yell, right? Like, I, this is not, like, I never yell. Uh, and so I go in the room and, you know, it's a little more like, hey, we talked about this. You know, I'm just going to tell y'all, like, we don't want to have consequences, you know, like things like that. No, I don't care that your brother did this or your sister. We can always respond, right? They do something to you, like your response can look differently, okay? So we're not going to yell. We're not going to scream. We're going to be kind to one another. And then I go out of the room and guess what? They start fighting again. Well, man, two strikes and you're out in my book. Okay. And so what happens is then I go in the room and I'm telling them, stop yelling at each other. Be kind to one. And the whole time I'm yelling and I'm not being kind and I'm making threats and I'm doing all this. And I walk out of the room and I'm like, well, that went really, really poorly. The, 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 the actions that I want to see don't match the talk of my life, right? It's one thing for me to go in and say things, uh, but man, there comes a point where me, just because of, man, I'm in need of God's grace, that man, oftentimes, and also I have a selfish heart that says, you are breaking up the peace of my little kingdom. And man, I'll go in and the things that I'm telling them to do, I'm not doing them myself. 
I, I start well, but finish poorly. I mean, in the midst uh, of what James is talking about here, I mean, I think that says a lot about our own lives because after laying out this call for action, James continues his argument. And what he does is he asks this rhetorical question. And if you really dig into this rhetorical question uh, and answer it, what you find is that the answer is negative and a crushing no. James says, what good is it? So-called brother and sister in Christ. If you have faith, but your faith does not bring with it an outpouring of works. You see, James goes further because he asks, he says, hey, look, can a faith that's void of works, can, can that faith save you? Now, now, I want really quickly, I want us to stop for a moment and think about what's being asked here. Because, man, I think that, that hearing just that statement there, it should make us wrestle. And I think James means it to be this way. You see, James understands the dangers uh, of uh, nominal or uh, in name only, which is what nominal means, faith. And so he presses us and to those whom he's writing to wrestle with whether or not the faith that they claim is really faith at all. You see, man, I, I could probably go around the entire room. And man, for many people, especially in our context and what we would call the Bible Belt, for many people, if you ask them, hey, do you love Jesus? Are you a Christian? The answer you're going to get most of the time is, oh, yeah. But if I were to press on what that faith looks like, how that faith fleshes out, where it even comes from and its root, if we're really to dig into God's word, would it hold up? Would your faith hold up? See, what James is really presenting is the nature of faith. And what I mean by nature of faith is he's, is this question, are we saved simply by faith alone? Or are we saved by faith plus works? And man, that's a question for the ages, is it not? Every other religion, even other religions that claim Jesus to be Savior, would say, hey, you've got to do something. If you hope to get in. And then in some you're not even guaranteed to get in. They say you must have faith. But you have to add to that faith. A faith a list of demanding works. If you hope to be good enough. And essentially what James is. It seems as if he's asking, I believe he's kind of asking something different, and we're going to get to that in a second, is this question that often creates a lot of confusing, confusion regarding the nature of faith for the follower of Jesus. You see, James's argument thus far in this letter is, hey, don't be a hearer, also be a doer. Now he's saying, faith without works is dead. Show me your faith by your words, and I'll show it by what I do. We're going to see in verse 24 later that he says you are justified by works. Creates a lot of confusion whenever you read the rest of the Bible, does it not? If you read, man, man Paul in Ephesians 2, he says you are saved by grace through faith alone and not by works. It's interesting, the, entire, the, the letter that we began our year with in January was Galatians, which the entire letter is you can't do anything. 
right? To save yourself. It's only by God's grace that you get in. Paul, in his letter to the church in Rome, argues that the churches, and I'm not talking about just one church, like the global church's position in light of the gospel is that justification is by faith alone, apart from anything. So what do we do with this argument by James that he continues to build on throughout our time today when we're pressed to wrestle with whether or not faith alone is enough? Like, which is right? Like, do Paul and James, are they, are they polar opposites? Is it faith alone or faith and works? Well, essentially, when you look at it, they're both answering the same question the same way. While Paul is arguing the nature of faith, James, here in writing to Christian, is talking about one's response to salvation by faith alone. James isn't arguing here for works-based salvation. Rather, he is arguing for a faith that in response to the love, grace, and mercy that served us and gave us life, not by our merit or what we deserved, is to be that we would act in response and serve. It would be the posture and response of service that we would have towards others. You see, for Paul, the focus in his letters is on the time before conversion. But James, the focus is on after conversion. And so if our response to faith is not this type of act of faith, man, we should wrestle, wrestle with the nature of our faith. Is it real? Or is it just nominal? Is it just by name only? Do we really know? Or do we just say we know? An example I, I use often when talking about this is like, say, if we were out to eat and uh, Haley and I were out to eat one night and in walks Dak Prescott. If you don't know who Dak Prescott is, he's the MVP of the NFL right now, uh, the comeback player of the year right now, uh, the player for the best team in ever right now, the Dallas Cowboys. And uh, But if he walked in the room and I said, hey, Haley... That's Dak Prescott. She would say, oh, okay, cool. But if she pressed me, said, tell me about him. What are his likes and dislikes? What, well, where's his heart at on this issue or that issue? What is he about? I would be like, I don't know. He plays, he throws the ball, right? Like that's all I would know. I don't know anything about him really. I just know his name. And I think oftentimes, man, for many people, if they were if they were honest and transparent, so much of their faith is just a faith that's name only. It's something that you just tag on to the, the a part of your life. You stick it on the back of your vehicle as a bumper sticker. You check the box when you're asked on the census. And yet, if you were really pressed, there's nothing there. Jesus is just a person. So what James does is he, he, he says, hey, is, is that kind of faith? Is that enough? And the answer is no. It can't just be in name only, right? Like it, it's not only transformative to give you life, it's transformative in that it, it changes your life. 
And the example that James gives is he points back to the beginning of the chapter regarding partiality and the lack of grace and care that we have for those in need. He says, look, if you see a brother and sister, and he's talking about followers of Jesus, right? He says, if you see a brother and sister in Christ and they are hungry and they have, don't, they, they are in rags. He says, is it enough to say, hey, go in peace, be warmed and filled? He says, what good is that? He says, that does them no good to look at someone who's starving, who's in rags and say, hey, I hope you can get warm. Just think about it. It'll warm you up, right? Like, just think, like, it's not like the movie Hook, right? Where the the food on the table, like, they open all the things and it's empty. And he's like, well, you just got to imagine it's there and then you'll be able to eat it. Like, that does them no good. You see, our hearts should be burdened. To seek to meet the needs of others. And the reason they should be burdened is because it is a response to understanding how Jesus met our needs. You see, Jesus didn't see our need and say, hey, just work harder. He didn't sit there and say, hey, hope you make it. No, Jesus saw us in our death. Because guess what? You weren't just a little broken. You didn't just need cleaning up. Maybe today you're not, you're like, well, I'm pretty good. I don't really need Jesus. You're not just a little broken. You're dead in your sin. And you, he's the only one that can give you life. He didn't just see us in our death. He came and brought us life by the sacrificial giving of himself. We receive grace through faith because of his perfect faith that came into action. To we who are the least of these. And therefore our response should be faith that produces action. And I think one of the greatest pictures in scripture of what Jesus would do. Uh, is whenever him and the disciples are in the boat. And he's taking a nap. Because he's just resting right. And the storm hits and the disciples just start going crazy. And they shake him awake like hey you're going to allow us to perish. All he does is get up and say peace be still. And it says the water goes like glass. That's what Jesus does for our lives. He, he doesn't just come up to us and say, hey, just, just be at peace. No, he says, man, be at peace, which is deep rest, soul rest. And then he says, be still. He has the authority to tell death, you have no power over them. And he gives life. As we think about that, I think that, man, if we're to wrestle with this today, I think we have to see that there's two real problems here. First is that we, if we're honest, don't think that we really are in that much need. For most, if not all, like we have enough in our bank account to get by day by day. We have clothes on our back, a roof over our heads, you know. But also, like, and again, I think he's pressing deeper here, right? Like, we don't think we have any spiritual need. I've got it. You see, we often live with light faith that leads to light action. But secondly, man, I think that we can quickly become calloused and prideful towards the needs of others, do we not? 
Man, so often in life, we live in a pride that looks to others and their brokenness and just says, just get your act together. If you would just be like me, you wouldn't be having those problems. If you would just work, you would just get a job. And in some cases, like, man, the Bible talks about laziness, both spiritual and physical and all those things, right? But oftentimes we're not even taking the time to get to know where the person's at. We're just automatically there, right? We quickly become calloused. So there's a a few times, I think in our lives when we experience things and, and man, they mark us and, and we can't forget them. I remember... It was probably in the fifth or sixth grade the first time I ever uh, realized homelessness. And you're like, fifth or sixth grade? Look, I was raised in a really small town, okay? We didn't get out very much. Um, but, but also, like, I was just a kid. And so it wasn't on my radar. Like, I was thinking about Ninja Turtles and other things, right? But I remember we went to DFW for uh, some kind of conference. We were, I don't know, we had to go there for something, and uh, we needed to eat lunch one day. And so my mom took me to Wendy's. And I remember it was like January or February, so it was super cold. And we ordered our food, and we sat down. And I remember as soon as I sat down, the moment, like it triggered, and I, I saw two men sitting at a table next to me, and, and I immediately was like, oh, that's what homelessness is. Like I remember it vividly. And I, and so, you know, I'm fifth or sixth grade, like, and so what am I doing? I'm just staring, which you shouldn't do, right? Like your parents tell you not to do that. But I'm just staring, I'm watching, and, and, and man, as I watch, like, I, I just begin to notice, man, they, like, they're, they're unkept. Everything that they have is right there with them. And man, they are pulling just stuff out of their pockets. Every jacket pocket, and they're just counting coins to see if they have enough to buy food. I don't know what put them there. I don't know if it was life circumstance or their own, uh, man, their own decisions. I don't think that really matters in this situation. Because I remember, like, as I was watching that, and as I was watching them try to scrape together enough money for food, my food got set in front of me. My mom sets our plate, uh, and man, I I had more than enough. And I remember looking at it and looking at them, and I just started crying. Like, my heart, like, right then, there was no callousness to it. Just broke. And my mom's like looking at me like, what in the world happened between me ordering our food and bringing it here, right? And she's trying to get it. And I couldn't talk. Like I'm just crying and just sobbing underneath my breath. And I finally get it together. And I'm like, I can't eat this. And, and I don't want you to, this wasn't some semblance of righteousness or like, man, I, I want to serve. Like, I was just like, I can't do it. I didn't know what to do in process. And my mom picked up on it and she said, okay. I said, can we just give them or can we, I, I can't eat. And she's like, no, you eat this. And then she went and she bought them some food. And man, it, like it, it, like it stuck with me. But I think one of the reasons it stuck with me is because, man, I, from that moment to now, my heart's gotten really calloused. Not just towards homelessness. Just towards people in general. I, I shared with you all a couple of weeks ago that, man, that's one of the struggles that God's revealed just as a as an issue of sin in my life right now, where I just I can be quick to just be callous towards the brokenness and sin in others' lives. But, man, what I expect from others is that they would be okay and sympathetic towards the sin in my life. I 
The same holds true for spiritual brokenness and spiritual poverty. We are quick to forget our own need, are we not? And so we dress faith up with blanket statements that separate us from the need to act. But you see, this type of faith, faith without works, or faith did not lead us to respond the way Jesus responded to our need, it is not a living faith. James says it is dead. And we can just see it as dead, but actually that word is not a good word in the Greek. Actually, what that word, which is necros, is it actually associates you with Satan, who is the one who who is all he does is deal with the dead. You say, no, you're you're dealing in the same things. It's dead. But, but again, James understands that he can't just say this and expect us to take it at face value without some pushback. And so, and man, he, he jumps in in verses eight, then the next couple of verses. Some say, uh, you have faith and I have works. James says, no, I don't buy it. He says, you show me your faith apart from works and I'll show you mine by what I do, by my works. He goes on, he says, you believe that God is one and do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And he really comes at it in verse 19. Uh, Another definition for nominalism or in name only faith is it's no different than what the demons believe. The argument here is that true belief or that, that there is a type of belief that's not true faith. Because the demons believe and yet they're distorted. But at least they shudder. At least they give a response. That word for shudder is like a cat when it just, you know, bows up when it gets frightened. And at times... This type of belief, the way it works out in people's lives is that they're too numb to even shudder. One day they will. And God's word says in Revelation that, man, one day uh, even the kings will cry out for mountains to fall on them. But true faith in Jesus leads to action that reveal the nature of Jesus' character. Go back to 14 through 16. What James is trying to get us to see is that living active faith naturally shows care and concern for those in need. Is that your heart today? Faith always produces works. But if you have a light need today, a light understanding of your need, you're probably going to have a pretty cold heart. It's this argument that James fleshes out with two examples to close out the chapter. And so let's look uh, at the next set of verses, beginning in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. 
you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. All right, so to continue this emphatic argument for faith that produces works or active response, James gives us two examples of how this fleshed out in the Old Testament. The first of which is the story of Abraham. He says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works and the scripture was fulfilled. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Now there's a lot here, but I want to begin with the end. Or I want to begin in verse 23 because, man, we get the context for the previous verses. And what James does in verse 23 is he quotes, quotes Genesis 15, verse 6. And, and if you go there, what you see is that in chapter 14, Abraham wins this uh, pseudo-military victory. And, man, uh, things are kind of set right. But in chapter 15, man, Abraham's a bit downcast. He's struggling. He's been promised not just land, but an heir. But he's been journeying for 10 years. And if you know anything about Abraham, he wasn't young when he started. And he's not getting any younger. And he's, but he still doesn't have a son. He still doesn't have an heir. And so God speaks to him. He says, Abraham, I want you to go outside and I want you to look at the stars. And Abraham does. He says, can you count them? Of course he can't count them. And so what God says, he says, look, no, your offspring will outnumber the stars. What it says is after God tells him that, it says that Abraham, Abraham believes the Lord and God counted it to him as righteousness. Now, the key word there is believe. That's actually the first time that that word's used in the Old Testament. And the meaning of the word reveals Abraham's trust in the Lord in resting on God's promise to provide an heir. It was this belief or faith in God that resulted in God declaring him righteous apart from anything he had done. Again, it goes back to that. Abraham couldn't save himself. Circumcision would come 14 years later and the law would come hundreds of years later. And it's this context that forms James's argument for faith that leads to work works. Because guess what? 30 years after this, Abraham would have a son. And yet what God would do is God would call him to sacrifice his son, Isaac. I want you to imagine that story for a moment. So God tells Abraham one day, he says, hey, I want you to sacrifice your son. And so Abraham walks in obedience to that. And he tells Isaac, he says, okay, Isaac, tells his servants, he says, hey, we're going to get everything loaded and ready and we're going to go to the mountain tomorrow. And they they go, they take the journey to the mountain. They know that they're going to go make a sacrifice and, and they get to the, the foot of the mountain and Abraham says, hey, look, servants, y'all stay here while we, and this is so key in the story, he says, we're going to go up and worship and then, we often miss this, he says, and then we will come back, which is so key. To what goes on in the story. It's so key when we look and think about Abraham's faith. Because see what's happening in this moment. Is the faith that began in Genesis 15. Is now being tested 
action is having to be produced. Man, just imagine them walking up the mountain. Like even if you're Isaac, you're like, man, I want to be a good son. I want to make sure we've got everything. And so he's like, okay, I got the wood. Check. Uh, I, we've got the fire. Check. Dad's got the knife. Check. We got the, you know, we're going to build the altar. When we get like, we, we got all that. And then he looks around and he's like, wait a second. Where's the sacrifice? Dad, where's the, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham's response is what? God will provide. God will provide. You see, his, his response is a response of faith. And Abraham didn't just believe that God might provide another way. Abraham, like if you understand what's going on here, Abraham actually believed that God would resurrect Isaac if he killed him. That's faith. What we know is that, man, they go through all the motions. And Abraham's getting ready. He has the knife in the air. And God says, stop. He says, man, no, and now like, I, I see your faith. And God provides. You see, the focus here is that Abraham's faith in Genesis 15 was justified by his willingness to trust God, even if it meant sacrifice. His faith, James argues, was active along with his works. And his faith was made complete by his works. Not because his faith was defective. Not because God said, okay, you got it this far. Now I need you to add to it. Which is what we often try to do. God, you've got me this far. I think I can make it the rest of the way. That's not what God's doing here. That's not what he's doing in your own life. His faith wasn't defective. But his faith grew in maturity through obedience and trust in God. You see, we have a culture of people that say uh, they, they claim to be a Christian and they lean on the term faith, but it is a faith that is a dead faith rather than a revealed faith which is active, sacrificial, and in submission to God over self. Again, James is not arguing for salvation by works. James simply sees that faith and works are inseparable. But then he gives a second example and he talks about Rahab. You see, some would say, upon hearing about Abraham, they say, of course, Abraham's a father in the faith. Like, of course he had faith and that faith produced action. Like, you know, they, they revered him, right? And so James presses his point by saying the, stating the same of Rahab, who was a prostitute. You see, this woman of great sin, and guess what? We are no different She had heard stories of a people whose God had done great things. And when faced with either turning away or helping a group of spies, she responds in faith and action by declaring that she knew God was giving them the land. And it was her faith in a God who she did not fully know that led her to respond in dramatic fashion by leading the men out safely. And man, that could have cost her everything. There was no guarantee. She could have helped and still died, and yet her faith that produced obedient action led to the physical security of her family. But her story doesn't stop there. 
If you've ever read Matthew chapter 1, the first part of it is just a whole bunch of names and it seems pretty boring. But in the midst of those names, you see two names, the first of which is Abraham. And then a bit further down, you see Rahab. And then Rahab gave birth to Boaz, who has a child named Obed, who's the father of Jesse, who's the father of David, who's the father of Solomon. And the lineage continues and leads to a man named Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus is born. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, did not just did not just uh, by calling us uh, to a faith void of action. He fulfilled the fullness of perfect faith. Jesus came. He received the wrath of God in our place. He's the true and better Isaac, the perfect son given by the father who died in our place as the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus acted as the perfect one who, while knowing our brokenness and death, made another way for us to have life. This is the good news. And while we are saved by grace alone through faith in His finished work, for there is nothing that we can do to earn, purchase, or clear our debt of sin, God's Word calls us not simply to nominal faith, but active faith that produces works of responsive obedience. You see, we are saved by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. So I'm going to have the team come back up. I mean, today as we hear this, today, man, I, I want, man, our response to be that we would allow God to, to, man, just wrestle this out of us, to reveal, man, what does your faith look like today? Is it just a banner you carry? It's just like, yeah, it's just a box I check off. It's just a place I go on Sunday mornings, but man, there, there's really nothing else the rest of the week. Man, where is your faith today? Where is God leading you to the fruit of good works? Because that's what we're called to. That, that man, we, our, our good works might be seen by others. Not for our glory, but for the glory of God. That we might point to Jesus. Oh, that we would have hearts that are burdened by the needs of others. Both in word and in deed, that we would give them good news, right? That we wouldn't just go do stuff for people, but in the midst of it, we would tell them about the good news of Jesus. And this is what we're after. This is what we want to see. This is what, and as we talk about being good news, good neighbors to our city. And it says God does a work in our hearts, such a deep work in our hearts that it would lead us and empower us to go and then live differently. That we would, uh, man, be about, man, works not for salvation or for identity, but, man, this is just an overflow of what Jesus has done for me. And so I want to invite us into that this morning. We're going to worship. I want to invite you, man, to just, uh, man, uh, man, ask God to give you uh, a heart, to refresh your heart, to renew your spirit, maybe to lay down some things. 
I want to invite you, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can come and share in communion when you're ready as we remember Jesus, the, the perfect one, the one, the, the sacrificial lamb that was provided for us to do what we couldn't do. And that would give us rest and peace and hope today, but also it would empower us and push us out to live different lives. So Jesus, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful that it's transformative. Lord, let us not see uh, James chapter 2 today as a weighty list or a, uh, uh, an enslaving practice of working for something that you've already purchased. Rather, let it encourage us. Let it get down deep inside of our hearts. Uh, let it uh, draw us first to you, but then uh, let it draw us out towards others. Now give us grace and give us a passion. Let, let our hearts not grow cold. Let our hearts, uh, man, uh, be quick to remember our own need. And go and seek to meet the needs of others, not just tangibly, but God, uh, ultimately that they would hear the gospel. It's only by your power and strength that this can be done. In Jesus' name, amen.